because you're jumping back into the gut. Oh, let's hey, go. Coach. Welcome to the Basketball Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Oliver. I appreciate you joining us for this week's podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit basketballimmersion.com for more coaching resources and access to all the basketball podcasts. I hope you will give us a shout out on social media, on Twitter at Bball Immersion, or on Instagram at Basketball Immersion to help me continue to share the game. Enjoy the episode. Awesome to welcome Thinking Basketball's Ben Taylor to the Basketball Podcast. Ben Taylor is the founder of the Thinking Basketball YouTube channel, podcast, and author of Thinking Basketball, the book, right? Ben, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Chris. It's uh, it's a little surreal. I've been binging your podcast for like the last six months. So now I'm, you know, next time it comes up in my media player, I'm going to be like, wait, I, wait, I'm the guest. That's weird. Uh, it's awesome. It's awesome to have you here. I'm so excited to talk basketball. And, uh, you know, I don't think there's any debate about it. Players, fans, coaches are all smarter in part because of work like yours, to be honest. And I, I give you credit here. And I want you to talk about it a little bit as one of the things that you do exceptionally well is you make, I think, difficult concepts attainable for all. And even as a coach, and gloves are off here, Ben, you can obviously geek out as a coach here. But even as a coach, I get stuff from everything that you share. And I just want to compliment you on that. Wow. Yeah, no, that's uh, that means a lot coming from a coach, because I, I think if I take a step back, one thing that's fascinating to me is how when you coach, you build up expertise in coaching. When you play and you don't coach, you build up expertise in playing. Um, when you're a video coordinator, when you're a scout, your eye is trained to look at different things. So, so each sort of role brings different expertise to the table. And the name of the game sometimes when we come together as a team and we work in these environments in life is like, how can we maximize each person's expertise? versus saying one person always wears the hat of being an authority. So it's, it's, incredibly, um, it's incredibly exciting for me to hear that from, from your side. And then to the point, I always find it to be a key thing to focus on where I'll, I'll, have, I'll have sometimes comments after videos where people will be like, that action you're talking about is called a Spain pick and roll. And I'll be like, I'll be like yeah, you know, I, I know that, but we don't need to necessarily stop what we're doing every time for an audience because i want to make it as accessible as possible and sometimes that requires taking really complex ideas and saying like what's the most salient thing we can communicate in my case it's to the audience but i mean i think it applies for coaches as well where you don't have to if you get a new guy at a gym you don't have to break down the ninety-two thousand things you can break down about screening and screen navigation and body position and lead foot and reading the hand and there's just so many things you can do. So, so much of that is relatable in the sense that I think it's about, you know, what's the most important thing that someone can digest in the moment right now? Well, I love it. And uh, to, to me, what was sharing everything I share on Twitter as well, I've decided to be literal instead of calling it. Some, it's cross screen down screen is what I'll call it because everyone might have a different call. And yeah. what I learned even with my players and connecting it back to them is for them being literal was better for them, too. So that's where I think there's value to how you share your information as a coach to be able to listen to how you speak, because it communicates directly to all the different audiences that we want to appeal to. Yeah, I'll say we have a tagging system on my team. So I, I've been fortunate enough to have a, a number of great people that now help me with the work that we do when we put out, whether it's a video or a podcast or whatever. And we try to have a tagging system so we can communicate the ideas consistently with each other. And then I think such a big thing in basketball, especially modern basketball, that is just completely usurped where I was when I started playing in the late 80s, early 90s, is like, we need a way to describe a complex thing really simply where we all know what we're talking about. You know, low eye, high eye. Okay, if you know that vocabulary, you know exactly what we're talking about with attack. Um, Spain pick and roll is another great example. Like when Spain pick and roll started, it wasn't called Spain pick and roll. It was called oh my God, there's like some sort of back screen happening in the paint and then there's a pick and roll and then there might be a lob threat. So the ability to simplify things and kind of boil down concepts that we can all use on the same page, I, I think is really valuable. 
We're going to dive into so many of those things that can apply to coaching. And uh, let's start a little bit with your background because there's such relevance to your background to coaching as well. And that's your background as a cognitive scientist. Can you talk about how that adds value to what you're doing and how you're sharing things? Yeah, um, it's funny. I've had a number of people that I went to school with, you know, find out sort of what I've ended up doing with with all my hours in the week. And they say they say, like, that's so strange. How did you go from cognitive science to basketball? Honestly, Chris, I feel like I use the principles every day in what I do, and I think they apply to so many things like coaching, like teaching, like development, like scouting. Uh, so, so the short of it is I studied cognitive science, which is all about how we learn and how we communicate and how we process information and how much of the world we can take in. So it goes back to what we just said about simplifying a video concept of cognitive load. If I'm communicating a concept to you, do I give you five things? Do I add new vocabulary? One thing when I work with the guys on my team, sometimes they're surprised. I say like, you don't need to tell the audience right now that that's Marshawn Beauchamp coming out of the corner to tag like that. They might not even know who that is. They might not know what his number is. So you're just adding more information that they don't need. Even when you uh, communicate data, and this is something that I've talked to NBA organizations about where it's like, how do we communicate from our, from our analytics department through our coaching staff down to the players, pieces of data that are actionable that they can use in a game? What you don't want to do is give them something super complex. What you don't want to do is add unnecessary, unnecessary vocabulary. I mean, it goes back to your direct descriptions on Twitter. It's great to have a tag and call something a fancy term that you, you, know, you, you use internally. But what you want to do is communicate clearly, hey, this guy goes left two thirds of the time. So we want to force him to his right or something like that. That's a really simple, easy concept. So all this stuff about like how we process the world, um, how we sort of take in information, how we communicate, uh, it's, it's, it feels all relevant in this, in this space. It absolutely does. And just piggybacking on cognitive load, people like you who have shared these ideas through the years, and this goes way back for me before you, but you know, what I try and do as a coach is look at some of these concepts and go, how can I apply this? Because <clears throat> ultimately all this is about applied science ultimately is what you're saying. So cognitive load, an example is a platform drill. What I've encouraged coaches to do is instead of having many drills, have one drill that you can manipulate many different ways because it reduces the cognitive load on your players on getting into drills. This maximize active learning time, time on task, all these other things. Yep. So it's like this one three on three can meet all of your needs instead of having multiple drills. And that's a great example of applying what you know already. Yeah, I, I, I had this thought as I was going through school of sort of like retrofitting back to the drills we had when I was playing growing up in high school and things like that. And you see it now, I think, and you said we're all getting smarter. Um, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And it's happening in many industries. So you see this concept of like translatability. It, it, when I was growing up, um, I mean, hey, look, I had to walk to school both ways and it snowed and we went uphill and it, all, <laughs> all that stuff. But like, seriously, the idea that you would have a drill, think about the mic and drill. Like you would just do these drills and ostensibly it's like, okay, well, you're developing a, a half hook in the post or something. Um, you know, I'm trying to think of other drills that were popular in the night. You'd get a cone out, you'd dribble around or uh, yeah. you'd, ru you'd run. Another one we did in high school was you'd run. Um, it, it wasn't a fast break. You like weren't allowed to dribble and you had to shuffle and pass the ball back and forth to each other going down the court. It's like, wait, when do we do this in the game? Um, how is this helping decision making, which is maybe the most important thing? I love when you you get into that with coaches uh, on on episodes, and it's like the translatability of those drills just isn't there because of all these cognitive factors. So how would you do it differently? How would you actually set up a player? Uh, and we can get into kind of like two man, three man things. That's something that anytime I'm able to watch coaches clinics, it's like, oh, three man drill simulating something break it down you know take a concept add a fourth man add a fifth man that makes much more sense in terms of how how our nervous systems work because the cognitive side people hear cognitive side and they think i did this whole pod on um 
types of athleticism in basketball last year, something I've been thinking about forever. And one of the areas I talk about is cognitive athleticism. And people are thinking like, that sounds like an oxymoron. That's weird. This is nerding. It's like, look, your decision-making centers are a huge part of athleticism and what's going on on the court. But your nervous system is also this thing that's happening under a time pressure. You, you don't have time to think explicitly the way you would if you're playing chess. And it's this intersection that uh, is really fun and makes the sport beautiful. But when it comes to the development that we're talking about, you want to start with training wheels and then you want to add more and more and more. It's like driving a car. When you, when you drive a car for the first time, you're like, oh, okay, my foot's doing this and I'm holding the wheel here and I got to check my mirrors. Drive a car for 10 years and your body doesn't even know you're, you, you, you know, you're driving a car. You can show up someplace and go, how did I get here? That was an easy trip. It's great. I'm glad you brought up mindless drills because you know, like, I mean, again, I support all coaches and and whatever they want to do, but we do know there's a better way. And that's the one thing. And I will go a step farther and I'll say, basically, if you do anything in basketball, whether it's player development or team development, and there is not the intent to score or stop a score, then it is not connecting perception and decisions to the game. And too many drills even remove that, even if you're playing offense versus defense. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I'm just thinking of all the drills I had where there, there's no <laughs> ball. Yeah, there's no ball. There's no score involved. Um, and it and it's interesting because I think one of the things that's fascinating to me about basketball is how much we get wrapped up in the momentum of a couple plays that can happen within a game. So. <laughs> It's a high variance sport. Sometimes guys make shots. Sometimes guys miss shots. You you had a really cool tweet that I think plugs into this the other day about if you're a defense, and of course, both on offense and defense, I think one of the biggest learnings I've had over the years is it's a holistic system. We don't care about the individual. We care about the five pieces on the court working together to try to score as efficiently as possible or try to stop the opponent as efficiently as possible. Well, the one thing you mentioned in this tweet the other day that made me think of this if you get scored on and you know why you got scored on, it's an intentional part of your focus. Like, okay, we're going to give up an above the break three because in these situations, we want to prioritize, you know, not giving up a layup. And that happens. And those guys make those shots. That's okay. That's part of your system. That's part of what you're doing. So the fascinating part about basketball to me is, especially back in the old days, you watch a game and the team would make like three shots and it would be like the broadcasters, the, Oh, they've got all the momentum. The players start hanging their heads. The coaches are panicking and calling timeout. I'm like, why are you calling timeout? Nothing, nothing happened. One player just got hot and hit three shots. Like, are you going to, are you going to change what you're doing now because of that? I think having that knowledge and understanding the way the system works um, and then mapping that back to drills and development and focus for players is huge versus like, hey, they scored three times in a row. The, the world's falling apart. So, such a great point. Um, I, we called them shake your hand, shake their hands. Yeah, they, yeah. they made a shot. Shake their hand. Like yeah. that's what we. If they're going to beat us, they're going to make that shot. And it's not on you as players to make that adjustment. It's on me to make the adjustment when we feel that's the case. An example would be not guarding someone who can't shoot, and of course they come out and make a shot, and then everyone goes into a panic and go, "We got to cover them." Right. And this comes back to <laughs> cognitive science and all these different things that you share in terms of data gathering gathering why did you gather all this data and then all of a sudden abandon it after one outlier possibly happened yeah and this is a huge i mean when you get into the the data side basketball is a data-driven sport you count up who scores more buckets mm -hmm. and so when you're figuring out like a weakness in your structure you you want to look at say hey we've got 500 three-pointers on this guy and the other four players are really good shooters and this guy's not a really good shooter and understanding that two or three makes in a row doesn't change that without any other good reason. Now, the guy goes away for three years and he comes back with a completely different shot form and you can watch him in warmups and, you know, he looks like Steph Curry. Then maybe after three shots, you might call timeout and say, are we sure that this guy's still a bad shooter? But when you've got relevant data and you have no reason to think otherwise, that's such a fascinating part of the sport to me is like a couple things go one way, a couple things go the other way. It doesn't change what you're doing. And it's funny you say that about uh, shake your hand, because as a as a player, 
I would always, I would always yell at my teammates. Like that's good defense. Don't do anything else. Yeah. Let him take that shot every time. That's good. defense. <laughs> so I'm curious and maybe people are doing this, but, uh, evaluating your defense by removing the opponent field goals where they took the shots we wanted them to shoot. Like that would be the true evaluation of your defense, right? Yeah. I've, uh, so I've thought about trying to make a video on defense where you remove all the shots as sort of a, a cognitive um, experiment to see how the audience would react. It's really hard and it's really time consuming. So I never end up doing it, but this is where, this is where shot quality comes in. It's like, how could we actually truly test that when we would get rid of the shots? It's hard to get rid of the shots. So what do we do? We try to say, what does it mean when you're covered in that space on the floor with five seconds left on the shot clock? What does it mean when you give a guy an open corner three and the nearest closeout is 10 feet away? Um, you know, I think it's, it's trying to use data in that way. Well, and it comes back to like, and we talk about decision-making a lot is evaluating uh, the outcome, uh, evaluating things independent of the outcome. Right, 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 right. The, 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 Was it the right decision? Yeah. And if they're making the right decisions, more often than not, assuming we have the quality of players we want on our team, and yeah, I know you get into that a little bit, roster formation, but we're going to win more often than not if we're making the right decisions. Yeah, it's, it's um, you know, I, I have played a lot of poker in my life. Mm. Results-oriented thinking versus process-oriented thinking. It doesn't apply to literally everything, but basketball, much like poker, is something where you're going to do the right thing a handful of times, not just once, but a handful of times. Sometimes you might do it a handful of times consecutively and the results go against you. And I think, you know, when I think of like NBA teams that are sort of mentally resilient, that is one of the things I think about. Like the, I always think of the 2011 Dallas Mavericks where it was just the same process, possession to possession. And it didn't seem like whether it was Jason Kidd being a veteran, Dirk Nowitzki, uh, Rick Carlisle was the coach of that team. And of course, he's been around the block and then some. It's like they were down 15 in the third or they were up 15 in the third. It looked exactly the same. Whereas when you when you turn on a college game, you know, you can kind of tell the score of a college game just by getting a peep over at the bench to see what the body language is like. It's tremendous. and. Uh... You know, you just, again, skill development. Do we care what biomechanical skill they used versus whether they made the right decision to shoot? And that is, again, old school versus new school thinking. I would think generally new school thinking is, yeah, I don't care what type of layup they shoot. I just care they made the right decision to shoot the layup. Yeah. No, it's 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 exciting to uh, to hear so many coaches, especially on your show, come on and sort of talk about something that uh, I think in retrospect would have been amazing to have as a player growing up, just a totally different mindset of coaching versus, uh, I always kind of joke, like my dad's solution to things growing up was just do it right. Mm. <laughs> like this is not helpful. It doesn't tell me, it doesn't even tell me a, a, an action plan, but I mean, it, it can be mentally deflating sometimes because I was trying to do it right. So, so, you know, what are we actually, what progress? Well, are what we is right? What is right? Like, yeah. again, did they make the wrong decision or did they make a decision different than yours? So what yeah. might be right to you versus your dad could be different. Yeah. No, that's the, that's, a, that's a reason why I don't know if I could ever be a coach, Chris, because, <laughs> um, you know, you only get, you only get to test out the one thing at that one point in time against that one specific opponent on that one day. And you'll, you'll never really know if it's, uh, if it's the per perfectly right answer, but you just have to, it's it's a metaphor for life. You just have to go for it. And um, and as long as you're learning from mistakes and sort of understanding the process as you go forward, I think that's that's how you go from game to game and say we're getting better because sometimes you, you can lose two or three games in a row, but um, you're playing plenty. Well, I, I have this come up when I watch games with people where I, whether it's an NCAA tournament game, single elimination or my favorite is the first game of an NBA playoff series. and the weaker team will be up by like 17 points at halftime. And you're like, yeah, but they're just making more. They're not getting good shots. And the other team who you know is better has an advantage. They're exerting their, they're exerting their advantage the way they want to. And it's only 24 minutes of basketball. Give it another 24 minutes. Give it a, they might lose game one by three, but they're going to win the next four games based on what you saw in game one. And I still think that's a really hard thing for us as people. The last part of the cognitive science background is, 
how we perceive and talk about the events after they happen. And so my favorite is the first day of the playoffs where it's just like, oh my God, the, the eight seed is up one nothing against the one seed. The wheels are falling off. It's like, did you guys watch the game? They're going to be lucky to win another game unless they get some new players out there because of everything we're talking about, because of the process, because of the shot quality, so on and so forth. Well, I love you. what you just said. You're an advocate for coaches because, again, more people need to hear that, the variance and the different things that come into play. And then the playoff scenario is always the best because all the pundits are always like, oh, they didn't make any adjustments. And yeah. I'm like, you know, as coaches know, like an adjustment is just doing it better. <laughs> there, it's it's been interesting. So last year, I feel like was the first year for us as a channel mm. that we really tried to focus on. Let's do a ton of tactical playoff stuff and try to crank out more of that content. And of course, in the finals, I think we'll we'll switch to it permanently. It's a lot of work, but it's really fun. In the finals, we get the days off, so we're doing every game. Yeah, game by game analysis. Game by game. It's brilliant yeah. if you can watch yeah. it, coaches. Go on the YouTube and watch it. And, and it's like it's like. You want, especially when you tell a story and you and you create content for a larger audience, you want to be able to come in the next day and say, brilliant coaching changes part two. And it's like, that's not always what happens because that's not always what needs to happen. There's usually subtle little changes, but sometimes the changes are things like, hey, you didn't get into the ball enough and influence him to his weak hand. And that's something that we probably should have emphasized in the scouting report. You come back in game two, and there's no magical like, well, we we switched Andrew Bogut to Tony Allen. No one's ever thought of there's there's nothing huge about it. It's just a small thing from game to game. So sometimes you have these these big adjustments that kind of feel brilliant. But other times it's just points of emphasis, right? It's just, hey, we didn't actually execute what we wanted to do perfectly. And sometimes it's like, hold the course. We're fine. They just made a ton of open threes. Yeah, you're playing against an opponent and they do things well, too. So yeah. I mean, those are factors in it, which people don't always factor in. But no, I love that. And, uh, you know, <clears throat> on one of your thinking basketballs on the NBA app, uh, smartest plays thus far. One thing I loved is when you talked about Jason Tatum throwing this lob pass and basically saying, but I'm not sure he meant to do that. Yeah, and it's yeah. like just like we need to say that more because even some of the stuff I share sometimes it's like this one play and I'm like, yeah, I'm not sure they meant to run this play or the players just made a decision that made it a great play. I, I had one of those last year as well. It was the first time I tried that concept last year. And uh, JB Biggerstaff called a timeout. It was against the Wizards. They had been killing them. Just Garland Allen pick and roll in the first quarter. I think like three straight possessions. And I want to say they set it up on an empty side. So it's the kind of thing where like when you're getting gutted defensively, it really stands out because it's like, oh, they just come down empty side. There's no third man ready to help. And Darius Garland is a brilliant passer. And Jared, Jared Allen is a, a great finisher at the rim to so call timeout. And they come out of this timeout. And it looks like they're they're setting up um, a similar pick and roll action. Garland gets the ball screen from Allen. And then Allen, like he's going to veer, goes to goes to roll. Sorry, I, 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 I spoiled the end of the story there. He goes to roll and then veers to set a down screen, which completely guts them because the Wizards weren't expecting this at all. They end up chasing the shooter off the down screen, I think, and they get another dunk out of it. Well, it's another one of those plays where it's like, did Allen forget the call? Did he disguise the roll? Did he start rolling and then veer to set the corner pinned down intentionally or did he forget that that's what they were doing out of the timeout sometimes you can't tell so it looks like these brilliant little tricks that players are playing same thing with tatum um but but chris even conceptually like when i scout a team i feel that way there's more stuff out there happening that we can't really be sure of because we weren't in the huddle and we can try to make sense of it but if there's no pattern if it's just a couple one-offs in a game or something like that the reality is we don't know. And that's not something that I think is said enough when we cover basketball. It's like, it look, maybe they were doing this. Maybe they were doing that. We don't really know unless we get an answer from the staff. And even then we have to take that maybe with a grain of salt because maybe they don't want to tip their hand. I couldn't agree more. And uh, the subtleties of the game. And, and again, if you haven't coached or haven't dove into things the way you have done, you know, it's really hard to appreciate those subtleties. And I love that you're sharing that, especially the subtleties of passing, which I know you have a fondness for. Um, just 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 share some of your takeaways from watching like Jokic and some of these great players 
in terms of passing? Ooh, uh, how much time do we have? <laughs> as much as you want. Um, I mean, I think just at the surface, passing is fascinating because it's connecting with your teammates. And in basketball, there's four of them that you can hit at any time. And you can do it in so many different ways. And so if I were to really nerd out and start to say like, boy, where's this, where's this fascination come from? It goes back to when I was a kid, I loved watching Magic Johnson. And just the ability to manipulate all the stuff you can do with the ball, your head fakes, your eyes, ball fakes. Uh, You know, I just did this piece on Jokic's passing uh, on the YouTube channel. And one thing that really jumped out to me this time around was he has amazing dexterity and hand-eye coordination. He has really quick hands. So he's a big human being, right? We don't think of him as being a super explosive and quick athlete. I think at this point in time, as an aside, he is in incredible shape for a person. His, like He's moving so well. That's just an aside. But it doesn't matter how big you are. Your hands, right? He makes up for that with these really quick hands. And he uses that in his passing. So he'll start a pass from one angle, feel a defender nearby, and change the angle on the fly. This is fascinating, like, chess match dynamics, right? Because he's not only reading the floor, and all of these pieces in motion, you know, what, who's tagging on the backside and who might be open. And then how can I go on next level and use that against them? Uh, there's one, there's one pass in the video I just did where he kind of knows Dylan Brooks wants to get back out to the corner shooter because it's such a common rotation now. So he like fakes, like he's passing out to the corner shooter. Dylan Brooks leaves the man he's guarding on the block right in front of Jokic and Jokic just drops it off to him. All these things are fascinating. And then you add in the fact that as he's processing those nine, those eight other moving pieces on the floor, he's adjusting his hands on the fly so defenders can't tip his passes. And then I, re- I thought after this, Chris, like, how many, how many Nikola Jokic passes do you ever see tipped? None. It, it, almost none, right? And that's incredible when you think about all the passes he throws. And part of it is his height which is a cheat code because it allows you to access stuff over the top. But part of this is just like, there's this extra layer going on in his brain as he, as he plays basketball chess, figuring out the pieces to move, you know, with his teammates and the defenders and things, his hands are also automatically in real time going, Oh, you put your hand up. I go low. You put your hand low. I go high. You got multiple defenders. I wrap it around your body. All that stuff to me is like endlessly fascinating. And then you add in, the dynamics in the game that have changed in the last 40 years and all the space and all the optionality cutters have, it's a lot of fun. Well, in smartest plays from this year, the other pass that really stood out is that Darren Fox pass where he's driving. And again, he, again, it's just taking advantage of advantage, but also knowing how the defense is going to rotate. And just as coaches go watch it, but just to summarize, you make me feel that basketball has another level and another level beyond because i think so much of it is like you talk about jokic you cannot develop those skills with those mindless drills you already represented in this yeah like and and if people just get more on board with just playing more basketball in practice players will develop because his skill is perceptual it's not biomechanical it's not the you know the biomechanical pass it's that perceptual part of it yeah. So all these things that you show, I think, really help in, in terms of us understanding the subtleties, but also show us where the game can still go. I feel the same way. I feel the same way. I've thought this for years, and and it's been amazing to watch the sport kind of grow in this direction where 15 years ago it was more stationary, and I felt like kind of a guy shouting into the wind. And then people would ask me, like, well, well what, what direction can teams go in? Well, take shooting, passing, and movement. And part of movement is screening, moving your body, making yourself a screen threat or a cutting threat at the same time. These are things we're seeing all over. Um, you know, you you publish all all kinds of work on that on Twitter and uh, your site and things where it's like at the lower levels in different leagues around the world, they don't necessarily have a superstar they can give the ball to. So they come up with brilliant ways to combine these things. You take them, you add them to the highest level players in the world. And it's like, I don't, I don't know where the ceiling is. We're getting closer, I think. But all this movement, shooting, passing, screening, all happening at the same time. 
Uh, the amount that players move and cut and run today compared to like 20 or 30 years ago, it's astounding to go watch. When I scout old games, uh, other than getting whiplash and trying to like orient myself to like, okay, wait a second, they were really focused on doubling the post from the top and then from the baseline. And that's what they're having the timeout about. Okay, I, I got it. Cross screen for the post and then doubling the post. But the rest of it, like the first thing you can do in an NBA game, Chris, is you can jump to 14 seconds on the shot clock because nothing happened in the first 10 seconds. Mm -hmm. Whereas today, we just did a vid video on the Sacramento Kings and how they're combining the um, sort of popular concepts to the league that trickle down from Golden State's movement, from Denver's handoff action, from uh, Steve Nash and Mike D'Antoni, pace and space. And th three seconds into the shot clock, there's an action taking place. And just how hard that is to guard. And when you and when you add the word flow, right, one action into another, into another that empowers the players. And you can see it. You can see it on these teams that are coming together and adding these things because Kevin Herter will come off a curl and then he'll just look for someone to screen. He doesn't know whether he should cut again or screen. They're all working it out on the fly. But if you're a coach and you empower the players to make these decisions and make the game read and react, Oh, I mean, the ceiling for, I think, effectiveness is just and, and it and it becomes euphoric. It becomes basketball pornography, this this kind of thing, watching it. It's incredible. Hey, coach, a brief interruption from our podcast to tell you about basketballmersion.com. Get the most out of yourself and your players. Since 2014, thousands and thousands of coaches have become members of our community. We would love for you to join, too, but don't just take our word for it. Listen to what a recent new member told us. I subscribed to Basketball Immersion on Monday. What an awesome site. Beats the crap out of Netflix. And here's what a long-term member told us. BDT and eliminating the fluff has been the reason we have become successful as a program. A Basketball Immersion membership has been our secret weapon. What are you waiting for? It's time to next level your players and team. Join our membership community at www.basketballimmersion.com. We look forward to sharing everything with you. <laughs> Absolutely. I love every part of it. And and to me, again, like you just said it, the goal is to score, the goal is to stop them from scoring. So let's get right to the point. And I see it from still high school and college, so many teams that are just are not trying to score on offense. And it doesn't put any pressure on the defense. It doesn't influence the game in the same way. And that's where the NBA has really come to another level, hasn't it, with that type yeah, yeah. of thing. Um, you mentioned the, the influence of Golden State, and I know you're fond of that. The, the beautiful thing about your Bernie Bricker staff um, and then the Cleveland Cavalier breakdown was showing how a typical Cleveland or typical Golden State play split cuts on a low post entry became now a high post entry and all the same split cut reads. And that's the beauty of basketball. Eh? They put it in a different spot for their personnel. Yeah, the uh, Mavs even have a set where it feels like they've turned the court sideways where they put they put luca in like a pinch post area so it's like a, it's like a post up basically for him and then they it's almost like a bill bow you and i think text maybe texted about this the technicalities of this once like they they turn it sideways so it's all going horizontal and yep. you've got sta you got staggered screens right so it's the same pattern right it's these same movement patterns of like how can i get three man and kind of four man actions that are flowing and blend together that are hard to guard. So you got your staggered screens. Luca's on the pinch post on one side of the court. The first cutter starts on the other side of the court. And then it's the same action you'd get out of motion strong, where like you start it from the top and the staggered screens are in the corner. Instead, they take that, they turn the whole thing sideways. The first cutter, can he can cut off the first screen. He can cut off the second screen. You can get into that twirl, Bill Bow kind of uh, stuff where the screeners are turning around and inverting and screening for each other. And they just move that to a different part of the court and say, we've got a 6'8 post-passing genius. Let's do it from here. Also, he's a scoring threat. So if he has a mismatch, he can attack it. Same thing with the Warriors split cuts. You just start to just start to kind of take these tools and move them all over the floor. And that's been one of the most exciting things to watch about all the X's and O's developments in the NBA for me. It's like, what are they, what are they going to think of next? And can I get can I get like league pass Israel? So I can figure out, you know, do they have league pass Australia so yeah. I can figure out what's coming? Yeah, it's it's so fun. And uh, yeah, the, the thing that um, it strikes me from your breakdowns and obviously what you just talked about is that, like, there is a structure 
So for those coaches that are still comfortable with the structure, structure, there is a structure, but within that structure then comes all this freedom and freedom of decision-making. And that's what I think really gets highlighted when you show that split cut breakdown is all the different possibilities yeah. within this one sequence of three players essentially, and how the other two are creating gravity and becoming involved. It's just brilliant stuff to be able to see. And it, I think it really is empowering to a coach now if that you create the right structure then you can give your players freedom and it's going to not look like they're just running the same thing over and over. Yeah, I was trying to think about the big differences between like 30 years ago and today. Uh, and, and Mike Prada of The Athletic, he, he wrote a great book recently, if you haven't checked it out, called Spaced Out, which kind of, and he's great with X's and O's and watching old film. And it kind of goes through the history of the arms race and how we got to where we are. And you go back and you watch these old games, especially in like mid 2000s. It was a hero ball era. They were trying to get the right matchup for the best player. Paul Pierce, Kobe Bryant, Carmelo Anthony, Dirk Nowitzki. Get them a little space on the floor and say, hey, we got an isolation. This is great. We got our best player in isolation. It's great. And when one player is in isolation, Chris, thinking about this, he could go left. He could go right. He could pull up. Nowadays, you could step back, but that's kind of the limit to your counters for the most part. There's not a lot going on in the system. Today, you think about like that split cut or even staggered split cuts and all the different kind of route trees to borrow from American football. It's like, yeah, you, we, we, know, we know just to begin with, you can accept the screen or reject the screen, but there's a lot that happens after that. You also don't have the ball when you're off ball. This is my favorite thing about the off ball game. And a couple of years ago, I did a video. Some, the title is something like the, the hidden art of off ball movement or the powerful art of off ball movement. You don't have a ball to worry about. You can't be stripped. You can't travel. You can use both your arms to kind of, if you know what you're doing, kind of nudge, push, maneuver a little bit because you're not dribbling. So all of these things happening away from the ball in conjunction with the the space that you can create as a coach. And it, and, and it can't be idle space. That's another thing. You can't just say, I'm going to put five guys 30 feet away behind the three-point line, and Bob's my uncle. I'm, I'm all set. It doesn't just work that way. This, the key to me about the spacing boom is create, taking, taking the post up as a valuable shot, which clogs up one of the high-value areas on the court, and moving guys out of that space like soccer or, or international football and saying, what happens if we leave that space open and it's vacated and we can cut into that space from four different directions at any point in time? No one knows if our screeners are going to turn and seal. That's a new one I'm seeing this year that I think teams can exploit more. You know, it's not an old post up. It's like a new post up. Run your actions, run your screens. And then if they switch it or cover it a certain way, have your six, seven, 240 pound small forward turn and seal and no one else is there. Cut. That's what the Nuggets do so well. Like you get screening action and Jokic is at the top and he's like, okay, Jeff Green, Aaron Gordon, here comes the pass over the top because you have that inside position. So this is the evolution that I think of that is, I think has been so not only effective, but kind of fascinating and beautiful to track. Uh, it's so beautiful. And, uh, you know, I think people listening can kind of hear some of the fondness for certain things, but uh, maybe dive a little bit deeper for us, especially for those that are listening and haven't watched as much NBA maybe this year. What are some things that stand out to you, things that have impressed you, especially from a coaching perspective, that we should look at more as fellow coaches? Boy, um, let me let me try to grab like one or two things on offense and one and one thing on defense. Uh, I mentioned I mentioned like two, three, four man actions and I mentioned the flow. I think more teams are doing that and I think more teams are putting together the idea of like movement. If I have a big where I can run handoff, handoff action, Chris, I mean, yeah. just just always being able to say we can reset into handoff action, use the big man. Um, I've seen it called zooming action. It's like a Chicago, Miami, you know, this, this idea where you have three players involved. One of them is setting the screen for a teammate and one of them has the ball for a handoff and just how many permutations and options you can create out of that. And if that's like your third or fourth option on offense, after you run your primary set, 
you are so much better than, oh my God, we're in isolation. Or even just three years ago, like, oh my God, it's the end of the shot clock. Someone just run up and set a screen for the guard and see what we can get at the end of the shot clock. So these two and three man actions combined with the movement, we talked about split cuts. There's a ton of that going on on offense. And then on defense, the thing that really fascinates me on defense is how far can you go with what I call hybrid zone concepts? Um, And I'll even include something as like a peel switch in this, right? Where this, the secret to unlocking the power is the communication. It's having the defensive system on the same page. So you can run shell drills till you're blue in the face about, you know, what happens when the ball goes to the weak side? What happens when the ball goes to the strong side? How are we going to play this passing line and this angle? But when there's a breakdown, what happens? And when you are a step ahead and you say, actually, when there's a breakdown, we know we're peel switching this every time. What you're effectively doing, if you can do that perfectly, is you're effectively switching in a way that takes away an advantage an offense thought it would have. And so this ability to like overload the side, peel switch, another, another one we're seeing more of in the NBA is nexting the pick and roll. Um, and I think nexting the pick and roll lives in conjunction with hard gapping, right? We saw, uh, if you missed this series, the Miami Heat last year against Trey Young, try to pull up some film of that. They were just like, yeah, we're going to slide like eight feet up and off the corner shooter. And we're going to put size on the ball. And then good luck making that pass because also we can recover. And you can do that. I see, I feel like innovation comes out of these playoff series where they coaches get a time to stop and think and go, how, how could we really stop this? How could we really choke this off? And then when you start to normalize that in the regular season, you're like, watching a game on Tuesday in December and you go, wait, wait a second. That's a, that's a diamond in one. And now did they come out of the diamond in one? Because now you can't even tell anymore because it's like a mat. It's like a matchup zone diamond in one because now everyone's just staying with their man. Why are they staying with their man? Because they need to stay with their man. Cause it, it, you know, you watch a lower level zone at lower levels. Uh, and you see these situations where guys don't realize like, yeah, the zone is completely punctured. You, someone else needs to rotate down. And if you didn't drill that, you're lost. If you drill all this stuff and you can communicate it in real time, it's, it's a fascinating dance to see the offense try to gain these advantages and the defense be like, oh, well, we actually know how to switch, rotate, communicate perfectly. And we don't have to rely on the old school, like, help your helper. You know, we're all going to get there when we can um, because then the offense creates an advantage and they know exactly how the defense is going to respond. Well, I love this. Uh, I mean, from the offensive side, the sequencing that you show, like the sequencing that, uh, you know, again, whether it was a player decision or a coach play, that was actually a counter. You show that constantly. And that's such a beautiful thing to be able to see. But uh, focusing on the defense, this hybrid defense idea, I love it. Adaptability rather than one solution. Yeah. And one thing that stood out to me, and I, I know you've shared this a few times, is this concept of pre-switching. I believe this is the most underutilized magical yeah. thing, especially at lower levels. And we use it in college all the time and it solves so many problems. So just talk about that a little bit because I do think that's something that coaches can use more of. I, I Can I add the uh, scram switch and the triple yep. switch yep. to this entire dance? Um, basically, you see it in instances where as, as all the coaches, I think, know listening. You see it in instances where you're trying to protect a player, usually trying to protect a big man and keep him closer to the basket and prevent him from getting gutted and pick and roll and things like that. But it does raise the question of like, why don't we see it more? You know, what the Celtics were able to do last year with, with Rob Williams, which also involves some scram switching. It involves the concept of triple switching, uh, which, you know, basically the same. These are all kind of similar, similar ideas. Um, it's just, it's a hybrid zone because you're saying, I want to keep, I want to keep Rob closer to this zone on the court. I don't need him coming 35 feet away. And if we're all on the same page defensively and we all know what we're doing, then we can kind of dictate the terms of engagement the way we want it for our strengths defensively versus just always reacting and, and uh, you know, trying to cover up the advantage that the offense made. Jokic, we, we talked about him earlier. In the postseason last year, the Warriors had a had a game. They just they just put him in pick and roll like 50 times in a row. 
Uh, and and it's not fair when you're doing against Steph Curry because because nothing about Steph Curry is fair or or really makes any sense from a basketball like traditionalist standpoint. He just breaks all the rules. But then you you watch a game uh, against Dallas a couple weeks ago, and in the fourth quarter, Luca put him in pick and roll repeatedly. They hedged the pick and roll over and over again, and then finally in the last minute on two straight possessions, they pre switch him. And keep him under the basket and keep him out of the pick and roll. And Dallas doesn't score on those possessions. And you're just like, could, could they do, couldn't they figure out a structure, an organized building block here that, sure, maybe you don't have him low on the floor 100% of the time, but there's got to be some way like what Boston did, where if you have, if you recognize a certain type of pick and roll coming and a certain offensive set, especially if the guys are stationary on the weak side that you can protect or create a kind of hybrid zone that keeps him in a better space on the floor. I'm just endlessly fascinated by this and sort of all the, you know, overloading the side, blending these things together. And then I think the, the dirty little secret, Chris, is when you stand around on offense, you make these defensive principles so much easier to execute. There's so much easier to execute. When you start moving, cutting, screening, it, it, it becomes a nightmare. But when you're stationary, and you're like, oh, we've got an advantage. We have an empty side pick and roll. You three guys go stand over there. That's when you can go, okay, bring this guy over, pre-switch this guy. You literally see the players talking to each other. You stay there. I stay here. Um, it, Yeah, I think it's the future. It, it's absolutely the future. And, uh, you know, and I think it's harder at the NBA level because of the spacing and the gravity. But at the lower levels, like college and below and FIBA and different things, because there's less space, these concepts are even more powerful. And that's yeah, where I yeah. feel... You know, they haven't connected as much, but pre-switching basically we're just saying, let's say Ben's going to set the ball screen and I'm the high player on the same side. I can switch onto the ball screen so we have a equal matchup on the switch. And then the triple switch is somebody rolls and we keep someone at the rim. So they take that and then I scram or get out or get out. It could be, again, combining kind of that peel switch action, which is get out early too and all these different things. But, uh, you know, the evolution of these things is really fun. And to me, that's what makes coaching fun, too, is that we have adaptability. Yeah, it's um, it, it's really exciting to watch. It's also probably why coaching right now, and maybe for a very long time, has been such an intense job because you're just you're just constantly pushing against the the sort of horizon, the, the pressure of like, OK, there's more, there's more, there's more, there's more, there's more. It's part of what makes makes basketball so exciting. And, and to go back to what you said a minute ago about other leagues, um, like even just nexting, we, we mentioned that earlier, the concept of nexting the pick and roll. Uh, I feel like when I see whether whether it's you or um, uh, the slap and glass guys, those those guys are great with with sharing concepts and plays from European leagues. Like you, you, you see teams execute it well that practice it. And it just goes back to what we were saying about being organized defensively, communicating, and having what is essentially a hybrid zone concept because you can bring that third player over. And if everyone else knows what's happening, they kind of bump the rotations down the line. We had this in a play last year with the Mavericks and the Suns. So there's a video we did at the end of the Mavericks Sun series where the Suns were down to nothing. They came back and won in seven. That was another great example of a series, by the way, where they were down to nothing. And I was texting people back channeling like, this is really interesting. They were like, wait a second, the Suns are a much better team. And they killed them in the first two games. I'm like, yeah, but if you if, halftime at game three, watch what Dallas did in the first half. Phoenix is going to have to do something to counter this. And it felt like they never did. And one of the things we had that Dallas was able to do defensively, they realized like, well, if I pressure Devin Booker at the point of attack, I can get the ball out of his hands. That's a weakness of his. All this kind of NBA specific stuff that we don't have to get into. But the thing that jumped out to me is they have a play where they're trying to protect Luka in pick and roll. And I think it's effectively a, a nexting concept. But what was magical about it is everyone knew it was a bump down the line rotation. So Luka, Luka instead of like peel switching or trying to recover to one of his guys, he runs straight to the opposite corner and all of his teammates, five takes four, four takes three, three takes two. And in like one and a half seconds, everyone is matched up perfectly of absolutely no advantage. And even if it's Chris Paul coming around that screen, you're, he's just like, wait, we, 
we have to just reset and try something else because that didn't work for some reason. I can't even figure out why that didn't work. Didn't work because the defense was all on the same page with one of these sort of conceptual rotations that it's like, all you're really doing at the end of the day is you're staying in between your man and the basket, right? That's still the, that's still the key and secret to basketball. But if you know how to do it at this level and you can communicate it instantly, it's, it's magical. That highlights the importance, again, of de- defensive decision-making. And uh, the other thing I want to highlight, because you brought it up, is this hybrid zone concept. Uh, and I've, I've seen really smart college teams starting to apply this from the NBA, this concept of flood. It's called a flood generally, is that you have someone extremely early in help and basically yeah. essentially forming a triangle. But the early player in help is outside the ball side lane line, basically flooding and taking away any type of space. And the other thing that it connects back to is something I share, which is defense is about perception as much as anything. Perception for the offense. So this flood, the offense perceives there's no space. So they're more likely to move it. So you're loaded in rotation, as you said, a little bit with that Luca example as well. So talk to us a little bit about some of this overload concept in terms of the hybrid and the flood. Yeah, we have seen this used and teased for a long time. Um, I'm trying to think if I have any examples of like the early Duncan Popovich Spurs doing it, but but Tom Thibodeau really with the Celtics in 2008, um, and especially in that Lakers finals, you see a ton of examples. The Warriors have done it over the years, but it's to your point, if you if everyone knows what they're doing, it becomes a very powerful tool because. Um, even the uh, the Bucks the other night against Zion, they used the same concept. They said, we're going to put Drew Holiday on Zion because Drew's quick and he's strong. So we don't want to give Zion penetration against someone like Brooke Lopez. What's Brooke Lopez good at? He's good at staying near the basket. So what we'll do is we'll have Brooke Lopez flood or overload that side. He rotates, gets outside the lane, and now you effectively have a second or third defender on that side. Well, if you're Zion and you're looking at that, you're like, well, I'm going to reverse the ball. And that's what he does a lot of the time. And you can create an advantage. But the defense, the defense is keyed in to all of this happening. They already know the responsibilities they're supposed to take. So Brooke knows where he's supposed to recover to. The guy on the weak side knows that he's temporarily zoning up to. He knows exactly how they want to rotate and recover when the ball swings. And as any coach will tell you, if you listen to him for more than 10 seconds, that cross-court pass takes a long time, so it allows you to reset. You know, the longer the pass, the, the faster you can reset your defense. And when your rotations are all buttoned up, it, it, it really helps you um, take away what offenses want to do. One of my favorite videos we ever did, Chris, was on the Golden State defense last year. And a lot of these concepts and drawing a through line between like Steve Kerr used to run the point of Lute Olson's one-two-two zone in the 80s. And I've seen Lute Olson's one-hour, 10-minute primer uh, video that he put out in the 90s on like one-two-two zone principles. And you bring some of those principles to the Warriors. And if you remember last year, it was a big deal when you'd turn on the game and you'd be like, they're in a one-two-two zone. No, they're in a two-three zone. No, they're in a box and one. No, no, they're going triangle and two. You can do these things when you're all buttoned up and communicating and you know your responsibilities because they all come from kind of the same concepts in practice. Well, and and what do you say? I mean, this comes back to a little bit of your cognitive scientist side, but what do you say? Like coaches, their reaction, if they're listening to this, is that's too much. My players couldn't handle it. They don't have this basketball IQ. But the reality is, if, if you're practicing the right way, your players are very malleable and adaptable to these things and can handle them, right? Yeah, I think you have to build it up. Yeah. Um, you know, I think the the cognitive load stuff we were talking about earlier is a big deal, but also just understanding the context of your team and your players and where they're at. If you have a group of guys that have been together and the a day one you roll it out and they kill the basics of shell drill, you should probably be adding something. You should probably be adding some of these things. You should probably be getting them to understand when to recognize a peel switch or or whatever other concepts you want to put in, a flooding the side or whatever. So I think you still you still kind of have to know where your players are. You have to know where your team is and you have to still communicate that to them in a way where they can hear it, where they're receptive, where it's actionable. All the things you talk about and you have so many uh, great coaches, especially the last year, you've, you've just been killing it with some of the coaches you've had come on and just walk through their different processes with their teams. 
who are all at different places with different types of personnel. So still tailor it to the guys uh, that you have in front of you. But yeah, I think it's the same thing that you mentioned earlier with drills. Create structure and then build on the optionality and the complexity off of that. Anchor it to something. And I think there's no reason why, why uh, basically basketball players' vocabularies of these concepts will just continue to get richer and richer and richer if you put them in place. We've seen it in other sports, I think. Just like continue, continue to add to this and the table stakes will continue, the bar will continue to get higher and then you can stack and stack and stack more complex content. Well, I love that. And, you know, for coaches, it just connects. Like if you're doing the same drill the second week that you did the first week, then you're, you're not developing your players. They're just doing a dance recital. And uh, we don't want them to do that. We want them to be adaptable and those things that go with it. Uh, <clears throat> tremendous. And I want to get to this. Uh, the back picks goat, the 40 best careers in NBA. Oh my history. goodness. An, an oldie, an oldie. Oh, okay. But here's the thing I want to bring out of this, because I think a lot of things that people like yourself are doing are driving my thinking about what I actually should be doing in player development. And the one thing that stood out with this is when you did the NBA skill sets and you talked about spacing, isolation, creation, passing, and finishing. When I look at those things, and maybe you can quickly outline for us, the, the value of those different things, it surprised me a little bit. Uh, the value of some of these things, especially the way we talk about what we talk. Curious, did anything change? And then secondly, am I right in my thinking that you doing an analysis like that drives what I should be helping players develop in terms of skill sets that are transferable to different levels of basketball? Well, on the last point, I think I think to a degree, um, I don't. I haven't thought too much at the lower lower mm -hmm. levels I, I wouldn't i wouldn't consider anybody playing professionally or even big time college basketball um lower levels in this sense but i think at the higher levels the idea of spacing shooting passing movement and and plugs all this plugs into decision making right and that all goes that yeah. goes back to what i was saying about about the um building a model of basketball specific athleticism i would scout these great players whether it's from the 90s or today or young players coming into the league that are that are blossoming superstars. Uh, and that's one of my favorite things to do, to know as a rookie, I get to profile where, where Luka Doncic is, where John Morant is, where Jason Tatum is, and then come back. Usually it's like 12 or 18 months later and come back and just see the way they've grown. Looking at all those great players, um, you realize like, shooting passing moving decision making they're they're part of this mental advantage that they have so you can strip out the skill sets and you can say he's a great ball handler he's a great shooter uh he's really strong he's got a great vertical leap and those things all matter but when you when you start breaking down the film you're like no this guy's just a much better decision maker than this other player or you watch steph curry away from the ball and you can say physically he has a cardiovascular advantage over other players, but other players also don't make the decision to go, oh, wait, there's open space in the corner. I'm going to sprint 30 feet along the baseline, even though I just passed the ball to a teammate. This is his famous relocation three that he, in a way, almost just kind of invented it because no one else made the decision to just sprint back out into open space. So it's all of this kind of like playmaking, decision making, um, passing and and the specific model you're talking about was more of a rudimentary thing to try to illustrate like this these concepts are present the tension they create are present on every basketball play you get a guy that can create an advantage you get a score that moves the defense just a little bit puts them in rotation adds a double team then can you make the extra pass can you cut to open space do you have a shooter or a finisher if I have a vertical guy, you know, if I'm I'm 6'2", Chris, if I set the pick and roll and run down the lane and Jaron Jackson is the help defender, we're not getting any points, right? But if Victor Wembiana is the guy rolling down the lane, I can throw a lob to him. He might not even have to jump, apparently. <laughs> you know? So it's like that tension is present on every basketball play based on those concepts. And the thing I love about those concepts, specifically the shooting, passing, moving, they fit together. You create an advantage and you maximize that advantage. Well, I know some old school people or some people come out, oh, we're just creating new things to support what old things already, you know, they said or did. But 
to me, what you've done and what I hope I've done is I've changed people's thinking in a lot of ways and saying, look, the number one fundamental in basketball is space. It's space. So why are we talking about starting with these skills and these biomechanical skills and teaching a proper layup when my under 12 girls team, they need to learn about space. And then the second thing they need to learn is about advantage, whether I'm helping them create the advantage or they're trying to create an advantage. Basically, you, the goal of offense is to score, score or draw two. And then if you draw two, let's take advantage of that advantage. And then the third part, which it connects to is shot quality which is what is a gold medal shot? What's a silver medal? What's a bronze medal shot? Or how are you find it on your team? And to me, you, you confirm or you drive thinking for us as coaches with some of this analysis, going back and data gathering, going back generations, which uh, really helps us understand how to coach better. Yeah, I don't think it's a coincidence that the offenses are harder to guard today, as you can learn from more of this stuff. Now, I, I have a question for you, Chris. Let me let me mm -hmm. switch switch roles. Um, for a second when did you get into coaching what what year roughly so, so we talked a little bit off air it was similar to that like it was kind of like the eighth grade where i had a phenomenal person coaching me who recognized that i had probably what i would call now a perceptual ability to to see the game and enjoy the game from a different perspective almost like a coach and he was the first one that kind of alerted me to the fact that hey you know, coaching is a possibility. And, and what what year was this roughly? Oh my gosh, this was. Uh, oh my gosh, now you're challenging me. Let's say nineteen late eighties. I would say okay. early nineties. Okay. Somewhere so, there is where my evolution of coaching came. So here's my question: plugging in that timeline, like let's say nineteen ninety, as a as a stake in the ground. Yep. Were they talking about spacing back then? <laughs> no. <laughs> so 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 if you go back and watch. It's hard to get it like before the 80s, um, but you'll start to see like seminars, home VHSs, tutorials. You can still find some of them on YouTube. If you go back and watch them or read old articles, I was actually shocked to see how many coaches, Coach K, Bobby Knight, Lute Olson, they will talk about spacing. You'll see it in the 90s, you'll see yes. it in the 2000s, but they, they just didn't take it, you know, like compared to where we are now, it's night and day. So it's very funny because you'll hear them, you'll hear them talk about like, um, okay, stop practice. Your spacing is all wrong. And I'm, if you're watching this from a modern time, you're going, yeah, you have three guys in the paint, and the coach will go, your spacing is all wrong. You need to be two steps higher. I need you one step outside the elbow. You need to be one step over on the block. And it's like God, you guys were thinking about it, but in this very telescopic way. So it was. I will give a lot of old coaches credit in the sense that I think a lot of the principles conceptually were there. They just they just didn't they didn't see the forest through the trees, if you will. You know, they're still talking about the the old like a lot of old ideas are really fascinating to go back and listen to coaches uh, lecture and things of that nature. But it's like they didn't go all the way. They didn't really realize that if you just vacate the space completely. It changes the entire dynamic of this. Well, and, and often they thought the offense was the solution, right? The structure of the offense was the solution rather than what we know now is the decision making within whatever you do. I mean, <clears throat> basketball decisions supersede basketball plays. We know that. So that's the, I think the beauty of the modern coaching is that we're empowering players to be able to make decisions within those structures. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Keep keep doing what you're doing, please. It's just it just makes for beautiful basketball to to watch and break down. Ben, this has been awesome. This has been a treat for me and uh, everyone that will listen. So, uh, thinking basketball, I mean, it's all over the place. But uh, let's let coaches specifically know where they can find your work and uh, where they can get smarter from following you. Uh, our YouTube channel is is called Thinking Basketball. We have started another youtube channel our, our second little child youtube channel called more thinking basketball because we realized from all our scouts we had too much we couldn't we couldn't get it all out in sort of the same polished way so when we have little extras or shorts or we want to go more hardcore on a concept from a game uh more thinking basketball thinking basketball podcast and then this season uh as chris mentioned and we we're talking about in the nba app we'll have videos regularly throughout the season uh, just kind of like breaking down players or concepts or last month we had uh, smartest plays in the NBA app. 
So that's basically it. If you want to support us directly, patreon.com slash thinking basketball. We have a million NBA stats up there that I use daily, but I don't know how helpful I don't know how helpful that is if you're not a not an NBA coach right now. That's brilliant stuff. And uh, that NBA app stuff, I cannot thank you enough. Um, and, and again, testament to the NBA, understanding the value of educating people to that deeper level uh, in terms of that. It's just great stuff. And I can't wait for you to produce more of those. Thanks so much. Coach, thanks for listening to the Basketball Podcast. We appreciate your ongoing support. Please consider going to basketballimmersion.com and immersionvideos.com to check out all the products we have to offer. We appreciate your support and we look forward to continuing to share the game with you. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and to give the Basketball Podcast and this week's guest a shout out on social media to show your support for us sharing the game. And to stay up to date on all things Basketball Immersion, subscribe to our newsletter at basketballimmersion.com newsletter. Thank you.